0: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Alex Reese. Dominic Cummings spectacularly quit as Boris Johnson's chief advisor back in 2020 over his breach of lockdown at Barnard Castle. He's been redesigning Whitehall on his Substack account ever since. After a dramatic start, Liz Truss is in number 10, building the team that will lead her into the next general election. It's a merry band of free marketeers, acolytes of the election guru Linton Crosby, and a trained harpsichordist. But who are the people closest to her ear? Who, if anyone, is the next Dominic Cummings? Joining me today is a woman who was once confused for Liz Truss at a drinks reception in Westminster. It's Bunker Regular and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. It's Marie Leconte. Hi, Marie.
1: Hi. I had actually blocked that out from my memory entirely. <laughs> I had forgotten that someone once mistook me for Liz Truss, so thanks for that.
0: This research has uh, gone on so long for this podcast that uh, I've forgotten where I read that.
1: I'm guessing I tweeted about it. That sounds like a thing I would
0: I'm not sure about. I see the resemblance, but there we are. So I think first we have to talk about the case of uh, Mark Fulbrick, brought in as Lestrus's chief of staff, general fixer for not just her, but going back as far as Thatcher and Major. He was almost immediately plunged into a scandal involving a Venezuelan-Italian banker accused of bribing the governor of Puerto Rico. This is a long way from Whitehall. How did we end up here?
1: It's Oh, that's a good question. I think to address the kind of question you asked at the beginning, I think what's interesting about Fulbroke, as you sort of hinted at, is that he kind of is the anti-Dominate Cummings. So he first started working for the Conservative Party in 1983, before either of us was born, unless you have a very good skincare routine. And, and you know, and he was actually credited for, you know, quite a lot of the 1992 Tory election victory, etc. He's kind of worked for every, all around sort of, you know, like every Conservative leader. You know, so he has been kind of working either actively for or around the Conservative Party for several decades, which is obviously the opposite of Dominic Cummings, who, as far as we know, was never even a Conservative Party member. So I think that's quite interesting. But no, so basically... Fulbrook has been working. It's one of those funny things, right? So He's been working as an independent advisor for people and companies and places for quite a long time. And the websites and descriptions and bios for those sorts of jobs are always quite fun because it's like, OK, you're clearly walking a thin line here between really wanting to seem very impressive and... But also you can sort of tell that you may be keeping some stuff out. So I saw that on one bit that, you know, he'd done some work in Kazakhstan, for example, which is not, I would say, a country, you know, re- renowned for its best democratic practices. And we have no idea what he was doing there, you know, in, in any sense. He was just kind of mentioned as a one-off somewhere. And it was like, interesting.
0: Many citations needed on Wikipedia for some of these roles, yes.
1: Exactly. And, you know, and, and looking at the case of the most recent kind of FBI investigation about Julia Herrera Bellutini, the comment from Fulbrook, said that uh, the only work he was doing was to conduct opinion research for him. and it's like, okay, well, well, fine, I said, okay, that's fine. I have more questions now and <laughs> this just raises more questions but sure. So again, so he's kind of had one of those jobs for quite a long time now of clearly doing a lot of different things for lots of different people it is not entirely clear what the things are or who the people are.
0: So that's Mark Fulbrook. He's at the top. There's a lot of people underneath him and working directly with Truss. You've written about the gossip that fuels business in Whitehall extensively. You've literally written the book on it. How do these sorts of teams get built? Do you just go to a drinks reception one night and then find yourself on the WhatsApp group called Team Truss the next morning?
1: (laughs) So I think it, it kind of depends on a lot of things, right? So the first thing is usually if you want to get a good job, let's say in Listruss is number 10, but that works, I think for every campaign, you do really have to join that team the second it starts. So I think the people who got rewarded uh, mostly this time around were people who backed her before we got to the top two like at a point when it looked like it was actually quite unlikely that she would become prime minister. So I think, A, there's a timing thing of saying, actually, my loyalty to you is such, you know, my faith in you is such that I will jeopardy my job, etc., career to support you. So I think there's a lot of that. Then I think there's a lot of, and I don't quite, because I've never been in that position, so I've only ever heard it secondhand. But I think in looking at this summer, but again, that happened uh, with Team Boris as well. There is just a lot inside the increasingly winning campaign of slight backstabbing and trying to fight for future jobs without necessarily saying that that's what you're doing and that there's a lot of politicking inside the politics, I think, where usually you've got obviously the leadership contest, which happens on the outside, but internally as well, people are very much, again, fighting to... Put themselves in the position whereby they will be the obvious person to get X or Y job uh, in number ten once the candidate wins.
0: Can we see from the team she's put together so far the kind of qualities that Liz Trust values in a spad? Have they got a good network of sources? Can they keep a secret? What is the kind of main draw to be put on that team?
1: Well, I think first of all loyalty is clearly a thing. I think having worked with her as well, which is again not, which I think Boris, Boris had to an extent. Boris was quite different, obviously because he um was not a parliamentarian actually for that long compared to previous prime ministers. But so you've got so the one I, f- I do find really interesting is Ruth Porter, who is the deputy chief of staff, who was actually who'd been tipped to be the actual chief of staff before Fulbrook was announced. So I'm not sure what happened there, but clearly something interesting happened. So she was a spat for trust. She was she's been a span in several departments. What I found most interesting is that she used to be the dispatch, the leader of the House of Commons. And actually if you look at the terrible, terrible time the Boris administration had dealing with the House of Commons, dealing with parliamentarians, dealing with the House, it is perhaps quite clever to have someone in there, the very top of number 10, who has a very good sense of how Parliament actually works from the inside. And also, I think, after leaving Parliament, she uh, ended up working in crisis comms. So I'm like, actually, to be fair, if I were to pick (laughs) the senior person in my number 10 team, that that sounds quite good, someone who knows the commons really well, but also does crisis comms. Surprisingly, though quite a few safe choices. I am slightly concerned about James Harries, uh, who's the deputy head of policy, because he's in his mid-twenties. And I don't know if that's a sign of just me getting older, but I'm like, (laughs) that feels too young to be the deputy head of policy for running the country.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of young people about in this team. Is this kind of an acknowledgement from trust that, yes, you have Fulbrook, who is the old grizzled expert in the field, but also they do need that Young blood who aren't necessarily as ingrained in Westminster drama and politics as the rest of them.
1: I think so. I wonder if it's not also just a purely generational thing of people who are now in their sort of, you know, people who are competent conservatives in their mid 30s and above have almost certainly already worked for Cameron and or May and or Boris. So actually, if you do want to bring in new blood, there's also I think just a very basic boring point to make, which is that there's only a finite number of people who are fit to work in government as advisors. I've never actually looked at the exact numbers, but there are definitely way over 100 former special advisors from the past few conservative governments. So I think it's partly that I wonder if there's not the thing as well, because obviously, she's very much from and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment from the kind of more libertarian small state side of the party. So the f- <laughs> the first time I went to the Adam Smith Institute for some drinks in like 2015, 2016. So I had quite a short bob. Uh, that was my haircut at the time. And I had a fringe, like quite a blunt fringe. And I had this e-cigarette that looked a bit like a cigarette in a cigarette holder. So I remember really clearly arriving and being like, okay, so everyone here is somehow either 17 or 75. And there is no in-between whatsoever. And then, yeah, within the space of literally like the first 20 minutes, was it like two or three prepubescent boys' with briefcases came up to me to say I looked like Ayn Rand. Um, oh, no. <laughs> then a man who looked older than my granddad came up to me to say I looked like Ayn Rand. At which point I was like, it's been delightful. It's been a lovely twenty minutes. I will leave now. Mm. It's a silly anecdote aside, I think that there is, and I'm not really sure where that comes from, but socially those circles have always had a lot of people who are kind of around the age of twenty five, basically, all very old people. Like the you know, you you'd see few people in their kind of yeah, mid-30s and 40s, etc.
0: So when you look at the list of former jobs for these advisors, it's pretty much an alphabetical list of all the think tanks on Tufton Street. You've got the Adam Smith Institute, the IEA, the Taxpayers Alliance, to name a few. How do you view these think tanks, what their role is in Westminster? Are they just looking to gently influence policy through their reports? Or is it more like they're incubators for special advisors?
1: Bit of both. So if you look back at the kind of history, you know, especially looking at Thatcher and stuff and how Thatcher changed the Conservative Party, that partially came about because you had a few think tanks who at the time who saw themselves as actually our role is that we want to create a kind of space in British politics for low taxes, small state, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera we know that actually just getting a few people to become MPs is not really going to help. So what we're going to do is that we are going to create think tanks and we are going to on the long run try to influence policy. So that's very clearly like, you know, those ones like that that's not me being a conspiracy theorist. I like, you know that is very much the reason why they were set up. And that's to an extent, I think, what they're still doing. So I mean I think that they fulfill a range of different roles. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of flag flying in terms of policy work, obviously. And every single prime minister has done that. Every single prime minister has had their think tank or think tanks of choice who can put out papers and saying, how about this policy? And then kind of see how the papers react, how the, you know, party members or party voters react, etc. And then that policy, if it does well enough, can be absorbed by government afterwards. That is very much a thing that happens. Then, yeah, the incubator thing is quite interesting in terms of people because it's more... So, if you look at it again, and that that's slightly sort of like boring practical side of things, But if you're a youngish person who wants to get into politics, so let's say you graduate from university at twenty one. You go work for an MP for a couple of years because that's kind of what you do. And it's not the most thrilling work and you're not paid very well and the hours are a bit rubbish. But then the problem is there kind of is a gap between if you want to stay in politics and you do that and actually, you know, let's say policy is your thing. You really like an area of policy. It is not immediately obvious what you can do if you want to stay in Westminster because actually not everyone can become a Spad straight away at 24. Not everyone necessarily wants to get to the private sector straight away either. That's something I think people want to do once they've got better job titles, better contacts. They can make more money. To be blunt, so that there is that thing. And again, I think that kind of answers the question about the age thing as well. Of you do sort of have this glut of usually, I mean, not not all of them, Christ knows, but you know, usually quite sharp and quite bright sort of people in their mid twenties. It's not immediately obvious what else they would be doing. And I think on the left, you perhaps have more. Places, you know, in terms of maybe like trade unions or kind of charities, etc., so places where you do remain quite close to the labour movement while doing another job. But I think on the right, the equivalent is kind of going to one of those think tanks and sink or swim from there, because then obviously ministers, etc., will pluck their special advisors from those think tanks.
0: I guess yes. the uh, only equivalent in the kind of working world is banks and investment companies, where you kind of got the same vibe of rising to the top based on cunning and your ability to make those deals in private, which will then serve you well in a field like politics.
1: So I regret to say I do not know the first thing about the banking sector. Neither um, do I. <laughs> well, it was the great tweet saying economics is just astrology for Protestants. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did not expect to get into sectarianism in this discussion about Dominic Cummings, but there we are. So one of the first acts of the trust era was to sack Tom Scholar, who was the permanent secretary to the Treasury. She hit out a lot at Treasury thinking during her leadership campaign, which could be seen as a veiled attack on Rishi Sunak. What does she actually mean by that? Why did Scholar really have to go?
1: Well, if I were to be slightly unkind, I would say that my theory is actually that it does not have that much to do with the work he was doing, because actually there'd been a lots of, I think, briefing over the summer that quasi was probably going to phase out Tom's collar over about six months, I think, was what was told to the papers or like what... I read certainly of saying, you know, like gradually basically get rid of him and find someone else. And I think the choice to do that and do that so brutally in the very first week, it was just revenge because Listruss used to be obviously chief secretary to the Treasury under Philip Hammond, which was a weird combination of people to start with. You know, it's kind of always known that the chief secretary of the Treasury is quite often sidelined at the best of times. And obviously in this case, you know, she did not get along with Hammond. The thinking seems to be that actually Tom Scholar was also quite happy sidelining her a bit. The boy's working at the top and she didn't really manage to do much with the job. So yes, I've definitely heard the the theory that basically that was just personal revenge of saying, well, can't ignore me anymore, can you?
0: So... Trust and Crossing so far have been walking in lockstep. The relationship between numbers 10 and 11 is notoriously quite fractious. How do you see that playing out? Is Kwarteng building his own set of advisors? Is there going to be a certain ideology that breaks with trust at any point? Or is it too early to tell?
1: So I think it's mostly too early to tell. But also, I think it is always worth remembering that. Like something that always brings me great joy and, and sort of, you know, everyone moved on from quite quickly. It's like Rishi Sunak was literally brought in because Sajid was chancellor, but Sajid kind of wanted to have a real boy job uh, with his real advisors. And then number 10 were like, no we would like a puppet and we would like to put in our own spads to create the joint economic unit between Number 10 and the Treasury because we do not want Boris to be threatened in any way. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, So yeah, yeah, just a very funny moment in politics. But more seriously, I think the thing is that A... Actually, you, you can't really predict, I think, how a sort of like PM-Chancellor relationship will go forward from the very beginning, because who would have predicted the end of, you know, the Boris Rishi story at the very beginning of it? But that being said, I think what is quite interesting between them is that they do seem to very sincerely agree on financial matters, which was not the case between Boris and Rishi, which was not the case really between Theresa May and Philip Hammond. So we've not really had that since Cameron and Osborne, which is probably a good thing, because actually, you know, there will always be friction and tension, I think, between Number 10 and the Treasury. But if you do have that kind of unifying project and those unifying beliefs then it is probably easier to deal with the usual level of sniping, basically. So if I were to make a prediction, I think it is going to go better than in recent past. But then that is a very low bar.
0: So when we think of special advisors and people who are close to Downing Street over the years, you've got Nick Timothy, you've got Andy Coulson, you've got Alastair Campbell, make of him what you like, and Dominic Cummings. What is it that elevates people like that to national headlines? And do you want that as an advisor? Is ambition enough to rise to the top because it's not obvious that always the right path to power is something like intelligence or talent if you're coming from somewhere like the Taxpayers Alliance so if I wanted to sell my immortal soul and enter into the camp of Liz Truss what do I need to rise to the top and not make the pages of the tabloids
1: well I think a lot of it is just down to sheer luck luck and timing which is like, it's not unlike someone's love life really so it's not about you know all you have to do is be your best possible self and cross your fingers and hope for the best why didn't you know? I think of that <laughs> Even if you think so, like Dominic Cummings originally was not meant to be Boris's chief of staff. And then due to events and reasons, he ended up getting that post. And even, you know, full break, as we've talked about, there are, I think, many worlds in which he was not about to become the new chief of staff in number 10. And I would guess that actually he probably joined the campaign on the condition that he would, you know, he would be made chief of staff. So I'm not, I'm not sure it sort of changes for everyone, really, in terms of not getting to the papers, I don't think that's something you can do and that's something I've written about before. So I, I, I am sort of fascinated by the like, at risk of sounding like an armchair psychologist here. But I think, you know, and, and obviously all the people you've named, the kind of, you know, Alistair Campbell, Nick Timothy, always a man, let's be honest, always basically a white man who's roughly always of the same age and always a slightly, you know, shadowy and clearly very clever person but who doesn't really have a moral compass and he's always clearly seven steps ahead of us and ahead of everyone. <laughs> Which I think that that's always a sort of nearly mythical creation of SW1 at large. Is that actually the closer you get to the centre of power and, you know, the more you see how politics works and how politics very often doesn't work and how many morons work in politics. I think that there's a conscious or subconscious desire to think it's all fine because actually there is one very clever person here. There may not be, you know, very righteous. There may not be our personal choice for that job but they're here and they're clearly incredibly clever and work in ways we could not possibly understand. I think Peter Mandelson was quite a good example of that as well. And so they kind of shave those people into those, again, unknowable big brain geniuses. And then inevitably each time it's like, oh no, it turns out they were just slightly random blokes who were probably actually quite clever, but not anywhere near as clever or as infallible as Fleet Street made them out to be
0: So during the leadership campaign, journo Tom Newton Dunn was caught on a hot mic describing Truss's attacks on the media as cheap. It's not a good sign if someone from Talk TV, generally pretty sympathetic to the Trust campaign and the Tories, is expressing that kind of view. You know a few of the members of Team Truss, and many of them have experience in the media as well, as we've spoken about. How much of this aggression aimed at the media is genuine, do you think? Because it seems pretty counterintuitive for a team which has a lot of media savvy and knows how important the media is to hit out it in that way.
1: I wonder if there's not always a degree of kind of coming in and just being like, you know, huffing and puffing about the media. So obviously, which I love. So this is one of my favourite traditions in political reporting and in politics in general. So in the Listerous government, we've always had important person does big meetings saying, you must not leak this. Meeting about leaks gets leaked within hours. But again, I will never, ever tire of that genre of stories. Who could have predicted this? Um, exactly. Every single time, every single time, which I adore. I do see it as largely postering. And they will always have, I think, their sort of, you know, friendly journalists, and people they like. But I, yeah, I, I do wonder if there's not a slightly meme like adopting of the kind of US right, like boohoo, like buyers media, we hate you all, you know, which is very much quite ironic and not entirely serious. But it's also a bit like, uh, but you know, you're, you're also kind of working in government here. So how funny is that really, even if you're not being entirely serious?
0: Do you think there should be more of a barrier between working in government and working in journalism? Because Legra Stratton, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson all made the leap in one direction. And former Tory Commons director Robbie Gibb has jumped between them both. Does this create an atmosphere where the establishment is kind of always talking to itself?
1: Oh, so I don't actually really have a set answer on this. That's something I've thought about a lot. Talking specifically, I think, about people going from the media to working for a political party, if I were to be devil's advocate, my thinking is a bit like, you know what, if you're a journalist and actually after 5, 10, 15 years, whatever, you do realise that actually you, you, you very, very much like one party considerably more than the other one. Is it actually not the more ethical thing to say in that case, I should probably jump ship as opposed to staying at your newspaper with that level of clearly at that point, you know, quite intense bias? I don't necessarily hate that. Like, I don't love the number of journalists who switch to politics, but I think it's kind of always going to happen, and especially when people get sorted into their category of be that against, or like media, civil service, I don't know, like, you know, the political side, etc. usually quite young. And I think that there's no, and in quite a lot of cases, it is people in their kind of late 20s, early 30s to go, actually, my bad, got that one wrong. And, you know, that other thing was probably a better fit for me. What I do really have a problem with, actually, is people then going back to the media. So actually, Allegra Stratton is now at Bloomberg, which, you know, sure, why not? Then obviously, yeah, Robbie Yib, um, you know, has a position at the BBC and quite a few other people have gone back basically from, so yeah, done the media to politics, back to media, which was not, as far as I can tell, was not really, really a thing until recently. Or at least I, I feel like we didn't see it as much in the kind of David Cameron years and the Theresa May years. That does strike me as bad. We're not children, we know that, you know, the Daily Telegraph supports the Conservative Party. I
0: mean, nobody told but, me this, what?
1: Uh, I, I know, I know, stop the press. I,
0: for one, I'm shocked.
1: It feels like a kind of different level if you have people who actually used to work for a political party than going back to newspapers, then surely, like you know, that's kind of church and state. Like It feels worse than just a paper having a generic editorial slant, I think.
0: Finally, have you ever been tempted to join the SPAD life? Has a friendly MP ever made you an offer to jump ship to Westminster?
1: So one drunk uh, backbencher (laughs) once was like, I would like you to become my SPAD. And I was a bit like backbenchers don't have special <laughs> and I, I don't know how to tell you this. Like, you know, I may take the job and be like, first order of business, you need to understand how these things work and then just resign again. Um, no, not really. I mean, well, I think the problem is like, it's a really, really weird job. You have quite a lot of former SPADs now in the media talking about it quite openly. I think Aisha Hazarika, the former Labour SPAD, is a good example of that. She's been very open about how mad the job is. And, you know, you, you do work sort of 24-7. You're never off. And I do have friends who are SPADs. And... It just doesn't sound fun. I remember, like, I don't know why that stuck in my memory, but going sort of like cabaret style evening where like everyone sings along like around a piano with some friends once. And at 1.30 a.m., my friend who was a special advisor at the time was still glued to his phone sending emails. And I was like, that is not. And that's someone who's roughly my age. That's not a life that seems appealing to me in any way. And that, so if you are very senior, you do get a generally good salary. But if not, like the salary is not even, it's, it's not bad by any means, but it's not even great. And I think the problem is that that's why spads end up just going a bit mad after a while because yeah because again like you never ever really switch off when you're there so i'm famously not a hard worker there's nothing you know i, I do quite like my job but all good things in moderation
0: mad's bad and dangerous to know well there's the message if you value your sleep schedule do not become a special advisor really can thank you so much for joining me oh thank you escape is available now from all good bookshops as is haven't you heard gossip politics and power if you're morbidly curious about westminster's salacious goings on and if you listen to this podcast i'd say you probably are it's the book for you remember there's a huge list of podcasts just like this one on our feed and new shows pretty much every day so don't forget to subscribe and leave a review i produce these things as well so i read them all and if you really like today's show, please consider supporting our work on the funding platform at Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. Offers start at just two quid a month, which, even given the current rate of inflation, is the equivalent of three double-deckers. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by me, Alex Reese. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofronievich. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.